0: How can an island rebuild its electric grid in a way that revives the local economy? Marcel Castro-Citriche is the co-director of Cohimas at the University of Puerto Rico Mayaguez. In September 2017, his home of Puerto Rico suffered a historic blackout when struck by Hurricane Maria, in part due to years of mismanagement by the local electric utility. He's developed a unique perspective on how to address Puerto Rico's vulnerability to hurricanes and how to build a more resilient and renewable electricity system. I'm John Farrell, director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. And this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Welcome, Marcel.
1: Thank you for having me here.
0: I think most people are familiar because it was such a big news story at the time that the power was out for a long time on Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria struck in September 2017. Uh, I was hoping that you could start us off by helping people understand a few reasons that it took nearly a year to reconnect power to the last customer when the same hurricane also hit Florida, but power was restored much more quickly.
1: Yeah, this is a very important question and something that I have uh, looked at, uh, experiencing a uh, part of it, part of the blackout. I, I recovered the power in my house 90 days after Hurricane Maria. But the reasons are, are many, but there is one a particular one uh, that uh, affects the system is centralized, and the the system in other places are also centralized, but the centralized nature in Puerto Rico uh, plays a major role in terms of recovering back now there are uh, other reasons why it took much longer than than other places, for example, even before Hurricane Maria. Uh, Prepa was already diminished by austerity measures, so there were there were less things in stock to to replace uh, poles and, and materials, and also there was less personnel uh, working with PREPA as compared to 20 years ago when when Georges uh, impacted us. Another important thing is that Maria was very strong. Uh, when it got to Florida, was it was not as as strong as when it hit Puerto Rico and and just looking at the the average wind speed over land that the impact lab uh, estimated uh, throughout the whole Puerto Rico uh, land area only five storms were more intense than maria and they were all in the pacific ocean that is from the 1950s until now so when we look at at, at that is is was a very strong uh, hurricane also, the devastation due to trees falling and landslides. There were thousands of landslides all across Puerto Rico, but particularly in the center of the island where recovery efforts uh, took longer to get and restoration took months, almost a year. In addition to that, we had a slow start. Uh, government didn't call for mutual aid uh, for more than a month. It took six weeks uh, for, for the government to, to call on mutual aid assistance, and that hampered the recovery efforts uh, in the beginning. The official version is that the, the private companies uh, could jump in without a, a matching or, or, or putting some money up front from the Puerto Rico uh, government side, uh, but there might be other issues involved, for example, the idea to make PREPA private. And I think everybody was aware that whoever restore your power is going to have a great impact on your mentality on, and on, on your perception of, of who helped you recover power. Is it a, power, a public power utility in the U.S. or is it a private uh, utility? And I think that mm-hmm. played a role in, in that decision. But I'm speculating about that, uh, but it's possible. The other uh, thing is that we are a remote island. So the support crews could not drive from other states to help Puerto Rico, so they had to take a, a come by boat and and that takes longer. It's more expensive. Um, so that's another thing that uh, limited the uh, the quick response that sometimes uh, the, uh, the states get. And finally the the rough terrain, the rural mountain areas are really hard to get because the PREPA workers were less, so the people coming from places like Florida, they don't have experience with these uh, mountain terrains that you can find in Hayuya, Orocobi, Sutuado, and that is something that also I think play a major role in the uh, what I call is the longest blackout ever in, in the world. That I have never heard of a, a power outage that lasts 329 days.
0: You know, that leads me to the one of the questions I had about um, something that you're looking at, which is kind of a novel perspective on how we might approach the solution. So there's been lots of talk. You, know, you mentioned about privatizing the utility prepa uh, that had been happening even before the hurricane but is now uh, a big discussion. There's a lot of conversation about microgrids, and I'll ask you in a little bit later about some new rules uh, that the Islands Energy Bureau has come up with for, um, for these miniature grids. Um, But you've created a a pretty interesting uh, document looking at the problem by focusing on the hours of lost electricity. So you just mentioned it was the longest blackout ever. Um, Tell me a little bit more about what you've been trying to track in terms of how this blackout impacted and and then how that's allowing you to focus on approaching this, solving this problem in a different way.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, um, the first time I I read about the customer hours of lost electricity service was a report by Rodium Group that they they mentioned that uh, already by October, uh, so a, a little bit more than a month after Hurricane Maria, they already estimated that that the Hurricane Maria created the uh, the largest blackout in U.S. history. Now, so there's a difference between the the biggest or the largest uh, with the longest, right? You can have a a very Mm -hmm. long blackout for a few people. That doesn't make it the the biggest. So the good thing of using customer hours of lost electricity service is that uh, you take in consideration massive blackouts that sometimes leaves millions of of people without power for a few hours. Uh, But also you can compare that with maybe uh, smaller, uh, like uh, Amount of people or customers losing power, but for extended periods of time. So when we look at, at the customers hours of uh, lost electricity service, which I call choles, uh, sort of uh, to make it short, Hurricane mm-hmm. Maria was uh, already above one million two hundred uh, choles on October uh, twenty eighteen, and. By April, uh, Rodion Group reported that, that it was already the second uh, largest uh, blackout in, in the world. Uh, only Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines had more than 6,000 uh, choles. But we have to keep in mind that the Philippines uh, has a population of 100 million people as compared to the less than 4 million people in, in Puerto Rico. So then I started looking at how this could be used to make better decisions, and also now how to best distribute the recovery funds that we hope at some point get to the people that, that need it the most. And that brings some interesting numbers. For example, uh, I divided the the groups of customers in Puerto Rico in three, and the last 200,000 customers that represent on 14% of the total of, of the customers of Prepa uh, contributed about a third of the total uh, choles, which are about 3,000. Uh, in my estimate, I have a conservative estimate of 3,000, but um, other estimates put it more like uh, 3,400 million uh, uh, choles. Uh, I have about uh, 3,000 million, and so. It is, it is a lot. It's, it's, uh, I estimated 928,000 million dollars for only those 200,000 customers that spent more than five months without electricity. Now, when we think of what should we do and how much it will cost to fix that vulnerability, uh, we should keep in mind that with Hurricane Georges, the estimated total number of, of customers' hours of lost electricity services... About 1,000 million, so it's very close for the whole hurricane Georges that devastated Puerto Rico in 1998. Is very close to the last 200,000 families uh, the, 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 the last one that recovered power after Hurricane Maria. And to put that in context with other <laughs> events, uh, with Sandy, there were 775 million choles. With Hugo uh, in 1989, that's the first one I remember. Mm In Puerto Rico, it was about 700 million choles. And with Katrina, for example, it was 681 million choles. So when we put that uh, in context, I think that the numbers are really mind-blowing, and we need to really think how to best invest to cover the vulnerability of these last 200,000 families, but also all Puerto Rico.
0: And so what you have put together is a suggestion that we focus on in terms of addressing those those families that we look at solar and battery installations for those folks as a way of both distributing renewable energy systems it's a way to use recovery dollars that will focus on the folks that are hardest to reach in the long run who suffered the most from the hurricane and also can be deployed relatively quickly which is important because of course another hurricane season is coming in just a few months and there's no way of knowing whether or not there's another maria in store for Puerto Rico.
1: Exactly. I think we have an opportunity. Um, the, the problem with opportunities uh, is that they are that, right? So if uh, the opportunity could be uh, taking uh, advantage of or it can become a lost opportunity. And now we have the opportunity to uh, use the recovery funds that should come to help have more resilient communities and uh, focusing on the area of energy but it should apply to other things too in having water and food and shelter but but in terms of energy we can cover that vulnerability with technology that is also gonna support a more sustainable community in the long term because then you're gonna have a, a, a local a locally generated energy at a competitive price or a con- competitive cost that is much more resilient in, in the case of a strong hurricane coming. Um, this is important because uh, it could give us a, a window into the future, what, sh- what would be needed in other places in the United States afterward. Uh, we have two s- specific issues to address that are particular Puerto Rico, and, and that is the vulnerability to hurricanes and also the high cost of electricity from the grid. Now, there are projections, uh, for example, the Homer Energy and Rocky Mountain Institute uh, did a, a work on on grid defection, the economics of grid defection, and they predicted that in a couple of decades uh, there are many cities that are going to be challenged or, or the utility model is going to be challenged in those cities by decreasing price of solar with uh, storage. Now, that already happened in Hawaii, and it is happening now in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, if we do things right in Puerto Rico, it could serve as a model for other cities to follow, uh, especially when solar with batteries uh, become a real challenge to the to the grid. And we don't need to make it all cutthroat competition. We should tried to collaborate and made the transition to what makes more sense for the customers and for the families.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss a bill being described as Puerto Rico's Green New Deal and how the island has already created more local accountability and policies to enable local energy production. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you've probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots organizations. and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits, and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. I also wanted to to talk about as well, though, so there have been some kind of policy reform efforts, and there are two that I'm interested in getting your thoughts on. Uh, One is this energy reform law, 1121, that uh, some folks are calling the, the Puerto Rican Green New Deal, Uh, It includes a provision for one hundred percent renewable energy, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but that it's you know out several decades in the future. So I'm curious, number one, about how that law might help now in the short term with this issue of resiliency and, and clean energy. And then the second one was that in the last five years, the island's government has established an energy bureau charged with overseeing Prepa, and and it seems you know in this conversation about making sure the utility is accountable, that is perhaps the most successful thing already, that it has already done things to help hold the utility accountable. And, and most recently released some rules for microgrids, grids, uh, which are, you know, s- small grids that can be run by a community that can either operate independently or, or they can operate in connection with the larger grid. And it seems to me that you know, both this new law and these regulations from the Energy Bureau that is overseeing the utility uh, could offer some near-term opportunities. And I'm curious if what your perspective is on those.
1: This, yeah, these are two good questions. It's a, it's a bill uh, waiting for, for the signature of the government, I understand. Um, it, it has some uh, good good things uh, because it establishes the mandate for 100% renewable. Even though I think it's a little bit far in, in 2050, um, and also it uh, intends to facilitate uh, the process to adopt more solar uh, power and, and renewables in in general. So th- there are some positive aspects into into this. I am disappointed though that uh, the short action. Uh, that is needed for what I have uh, called the 200,000 families that spend more than five months without power is is not included in this um, bill, and that is something that should be uh, the part of the energy uh, public policy. Uh, also, this bill leaves the door open for a potential large investment in natural gas infrastructure as a transition to to 100% uh, solar and that that is also worrisome because we we might not do the best investments if, if we go too much into build new gas infrastructure if we're really trying to uh, go 100% solar in in few decades when this infrastructure might last another uh, 50 60 years and also while there there has been more talk about Uh, utility-scale solar and utility-scale storage, I don't see enough prioritization of rooftop solar. Uh, That also gets reflected in the IRP by by PREPA that includes uh, a a good amount of utility solar systems but not the the rooftop solar. And again, this is where we need to start. We need to start with the rooftops. I, I call it the Bottom-up grid approach. We need to build a new uh, power grid from the bottom, starting in the rooftops of the houses and business and industry. Then look at what we can do at community level. For example, for houses, maybe there are some community centers that that should be uh, empowered with uh, these kind of systems. And at community level, so we could build microgrids that reinforce what already exists in, in maybe many houses but maybe not all of them can have a solar system for infrastructure problems or shading or things like that, and a microgrid can can help uh, with that. And if you go up the bottom-up grid, maybe by the time you get to look at mini-grids, if you already have a strong system, the mini-grids might not make economic sense, uh, the kind of investment needed, if you already have so many rooftop systems and also uh, microgrids. One problem with with this approach is that the the big companies that install big systems, major projects like like uh, one billion and a half generator, if they want to do make money uh, with solar rooftop, then you need to have uh, hundreds of thousands of small projects, and that's. Uh, not as good for these kind of big companies. However, it is good for small companies in Puerto Rico that do these kind of installations. Um, so I see it as a win-win, but it could create a problem with with those interests. Um, about the microgrid uh, uh, development in the island, and there is a, a new rules, and now I, I believe that the the interconnection rules uh, there, there is a draft released uh, last month so it's on the review so that's moving forward and, and i think that's great uh, it's is there's these are the steps in the in the right direction and we need to enable communities to be able to establish microgrids and maybe also find different ways to establish microgrids uh, however again i think that's not the place to start We need to start with the rooftops that exist now, and that can be done now without further uh, regulations or rules. And we need to find a way that as we add rooftop solar with batteries in thousands, in hundreds of thousands of houses, that uh, those resources could be then used when we build the microgrid at that level. And, And perhaps one of the things that I want to research the next couple of years is how to use the solar rooftop with batteries as a precursor of the microgrid and not make it a com- competition between, well, if, if this community, they have solar rooftop and this one have microgrids. No, how can we a massively deploy solar rooftop system with batteries and then connect them in the microgrid way to make the the system more robust? Because in the end, what we want to do is keep the lights on. And from there on, then we are talking about getting to the future of a prosumer, uh, transactive energy and peer-to-peer energy that could be uh, tested in Puerto Rico if we have this massive level of distributed uh, capacity for generation and for storage. So, again, this could be a good opportunity to cover a vulnerability that is, is very much needed in the rural areas of Puerto Rico, to leapfrog and go to to the the next uh, grid or, or the next energy uh, system that we should have in other places but here because of the abundance of solar the high cost of power uh, from the grid and the vulnerability to hurricanes could uh, help to do the transition faster. And also considering that we have an aging infrastructure, the fleet generation fleet of PREPA is about 30 years older than, than the, in the U.S. So something I say is that, it's like we're driving a Toyota Corolla from the 1980s. This is our fleet. Um, mm-hmm. But if we're gonna go through a transition that is gonna make obsolete all the roads and now all, all the cars are gonna fly, for us to stop driving the little car from the 80s, you know, we're not going to be losing as much as if we just have a brand new uh, Chevy, that, which might be the, the new uh, natural gas infrastructure. So, so I think we are in a good position because we have aging infrastructure to make the transition Faster and more direct to, to renewables.
0: Well, Marcel, I just want to make sure folks know we will uh, have a link to the paper that you've put together on Choles on the lost hours of electricity and on this focus on those 200,000 most vulnerable customers, uh, the microgrid regulations, the bill, the 100% renewable bill 1121, which is possible, will be signed by Governor Roseo before we publish this. Uh, I also share uh, an article that I wrote about a year and a half ago kind of giving some of that big picture background uh, about the colonial past and present uh, of Puerto Rico. Um, thank you so much for sharing your vision for how Puerto Rico can recover from Maria and invest in the local communities and in rooftop solar. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation. And I hope that this conversation continues because this is, a, I see, as a long-term uh, fight. Uh, is, is always going to be difficult, but I think this energy fight in Puerto Rico is one that we can win, and we can win it for the benefit of the people that need it the most.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Marcel. It was a pleasure talking to you and also meeting you in San Juan a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about your work uh, in the coming months and years.
1: Thank you, and I look forward to work more with you and maybe some uh, members of your audience.
0: This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Marcel Castro-Citriche, co-director of Cohemus at the University of Puerto Rico Mayaguez, about the island's efforts to build a clean energy system that works for everyone. This podcast is an excerpt of a longer conversation with Marcel for ILSR's Building Local Power podcast, available on our website. Check it out to hear more about Marcel's particular project focusing on the most vulnerable residents of Puerto Rico, as well as more about the island's troubling colonial past and present. On the show page, you'll also find a transcript, a link to Marcel's project on Choles, the island's new microgrid regulations, Bill 1121 for 100% renewable energy, and a commentary I published for Green Tech Media back in late 2017 summarizing the challenges facing Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 70 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time... Keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.